Today we're going to focus on how to pray in a crisis. This is the last of the message series in this. Uh, it, we're going to talk about this because every one of us needs to know how to pray during a crisis. On one level, you could say, you could argue and say, oh, well, we just know how to. We just, we just cry out to God. Well, uh, that, that sounds real good when you're not in crisis. But when you're in crisis, it, you feel vulnerable uh, and you need more. It's kind of what you want. And so today we're going to talk about how to pray in a crisis. When I was growing up in the state of Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma to be specific, every spring brought crisis. Every spring brought tornadoes. You've seen them in the news. You've seen them around here. But tornado, we're, or, we, we lived in the heart of Tornado Alley where I grew up, as they said. Uh, the number, the size of the tornadoes, the amount of damage from year to year varied. On average in Oklahoma, we had you know, almost 60 tornadoes a year on average. Uh, there were a lot of years I remember twice that number. The fact that we were going to have tornadoes was a given. It was predictable. What was unknown was how many, how frequent, how much damage, that kind of thing. How do you pray during times like that? You know, if you have a hurricane bearing down on your coast, your property, how do you pray? You know, a number of us are leaving tomorrow for uh, a visit to the land of the ancient prophets and the apostles in Jesus. We're headed to Israel tomorrow. Uh, about 30 of us, actually. Nine or so are from other places, but there's over 20 of us that are from here. And uh, so, first of all, I would say, please pray for us uh, as we travel, because uh, there's a lot of things involved in that going to Israel, but we're very excited about it. But uh, Israel... If you pay attention to the news, they are familiar with crisis, very familiar with this. You know how many rockets have been fired into Israel from Gaza just this year? Just in 2018, more than 350 rockets have been fired. You, know, you think you hear about this in the news, but it's just, it's a constant, it's everyday life for particularly the folks in the southern part of the country. On January 1, two rockets were fired. On January 3, four rockets were fired. On February 2nd, one rocket was fired in the morning and one in the evening. Uh, in uh, January 17th, multiple rockets. They couldn't even count them all that day. So uh, they just said multiple. Uh, we could read on down. You know, May, 70 rockets on, uh, on May 29th. 45 rockets on June 20th. I'm just skipping a whole bunch here. 174 rockets on July 14th. I, this is a crisis a day, particularly in southern Israel. Israel's been very familiar with crisis, both in ancient times as well as modern times, and so are most of us. And whether our crisis is something like that or if it's health-related or financial or relational or something else, it's important that we learn how to pray during crisis from the biblical teachings. So this morning we're going to learn from Israel in particular since we're going there and the scriptures talk about that a lot about the nation of Israel. We're going to learn from them how to pray during a crisis. If you have your Bible, open it to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 is where we're going to look. If you 
want to follow along on the screen with me this morning, you're certainly welcome to do that. We're going to have a fairly extended passage of Scripture here. And let me just explain something to you. Occasionally, you know, I will have uh, go through my mind. People probably wonder why I will read a chunk of Scripture like this. I'm going to read several verses. There's like 27 verses in a row. And the temptation sometimes is from us to go, oh, somebody's going to read the pages from the Bible. Boring. And then you go to your happy place in your mind, you know. Let me, just, let me just say, that most any of us that do that, it's often because we're not thinking about what really the Bible is saying. There is not a better storyteller than God. I mean, I, I couldn't make this up, and nobody else could, the story I'm about to tell you. That's not just a story, but it's, it's a historical, factual event that occurred. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, particularly when you hear it. You'll just go, that's unbelievable, except that it is believable. And so if you just listen, what it, what it will do is it will inspire you to not just read this with me, but to, my hope is to inspire you to read a lot of other passages like it. Because God is brilliant. His word is inspiring. It's transformational. I mean, it will change your life. And there are things that the Holy Spirit will say to you through his word that he just won't say any other way. And I just... I just implore you not just to listen as I read this morning, but to make it, uh, make it a, a subject matter that you read routinely, daily, for your own benefit. So we're going to read this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 to 27. Listen close, and in particular, just, just try to picture it in your mind. This is how you have to do it. Try to picture it in your mind, the people, their faces, the event. Don't get bogged down on pronunciation of names. Because, frankly, most of us in the room don't speak Hebrew. Just don't. That'll be driven home to those of us who are going to Israel you know, tomorrow. We don't speak Hebrew. We'll try, and we'll still butcher it. Okay? It's harder than Spanish, by the way. So uh, just don't get bogged down on that. Just listen, and God will work in your heart. This is what the Scripture says. After this, the armies of the Moabites, Ammonites, and some of the Munites declared war on Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the king of Israel at the time, by the way. Verse 2. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Eden, Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. They're already at Hezazan Tamar. This is another name for En Gedi. Some of you have heard of En Gedi. Probably haven't heard the other name. Verse 3. Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news. And begged the Lord for guidance. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord. And he prayed, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? Your people settled here and built this temple to honor your name. They said, whenever we're faced with any calamity, any crisis, you might say, such as war or plague or famine, we can come to stand in your presence before the temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you to save us and you will hear us and rescue us. And now see what the armies of Ammon 
Moab, Mount Seir are doing. You would not let our ancestors invade those nations when Israel left Egypt. So they went around them and did not destroy them. Now see how they reward us, for they've come to throw us out of your land, which you gave to us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. Now just pause and we think this is, this is Jehoshaphat's prayer. He's in public in front of all the people. Can you imagine President Trump doing this on national TV in our day? This would be the equivalent. This is like the entire land hearing this as he's in public. In verse 13, this crowd of peoples gather around. It continues and says, As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives, and children. Think about that. Just picture that. The Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. His name was Jehaziel, I think is how it is, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, who was a Levite, who was a descendant of Asaph. See what I'm saying? Just don't get hung up on all the names. Just... Plow through them is what you do. Doesn't mean that they don't have significance at time. It just means that, you know, read the story, get the point. He said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them. You will find them coming up through the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel. But you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. O people of Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. And then King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites from the clans of Kohath and Korah stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud shout. And early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And on the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, Listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you'll be able to stand firm. Believe in His prophets and you will succeed. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising Him for His holy splendor. And this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. And at the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. And after they destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. King Jehoshaphat and his men went out to gather the plunder. They found vast amounts of equipment and clothing and other valuables, more than they could carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days just to collect it all. On the fourth day, they gathered in the Valley of Blessing, which got its name that day, because the people praised and thanked the Lord there. It is still called the Valley of Blessing today, the time that this was written. And then all the men returned to Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat leading them, overjoyed that the Lord had given them victory over their enemies. 
so many directions we could go with this particular passage. We could talk, you know, we could talk about a lot of subjects. But what we're going to do for the next few minutes is we're going to look at this passage and ask this question. What can we learn from ancient Israel about how to pray during a crisis? This is going to be the primary focus of what we're going to do today. And what I'm going to do real quickly is highlight for you five key responses here to the crisis. Uh, five key responses that, that Jehoshaphat, that, that, that the nation had when they encountered this crisis. And here's what I would say. What's true for a nation in this respect is true for individuals. So my hope is that you'll listen close, that you'll make notes of this, because maybe you're not in crisis right now. Maybe you need to put this somewhere. Keep it in your Bible, keep it someplace so that one of these days when crisis erupts in your life of some sort, you got this to kind of go back to and you can look back through it and it'll, it'll be something the Holy Spirit can use to strengthen you, to, to give you peace in the midst of that moment. Five key responses to crisis here, how to pray during this time. The first response is this. I'm going to walk through them pretty quickly, the first four especially. The first one is beg for guidance. I just want you to see in the text. Look at verse 3. It's real clear. Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news. And look what he does. And begged the Lord for guidance. I just want you to hear somebody say this. It's okay to plead with God, to beg God in a moment of crisis. I just want you to see somebody who did it in the Bible. And God honored their request. Sometimes we find ourselves in crisis and, and we're just, words fail us and there's internal stress and we want to plead with God. We want to beg God to intervene and we feel guilty about that and don't feel guilty. Just do it. Plead. Beg God. He's the one with all the power. Not you. Not me. It's okay. It's okay. Second key response to crisis when it comes to this whole matter of prayer that we see here. In verse 3, if you read on, what did Jehoshaphat do? He not only begged the Lord for guidance, he also ordered everyone in Judah, according to the text, to begin fasting. The second key response is fast. When you're in a crisis, if ever there was a time to fast, this is one of them. Fast. Some of you are saying, maybe, maybe you don't have a lot of spiritual background. Some of you listening this morning, you just think, what is fasting? Fasting is when you when you, uh, the, the old days, they used to refer to it as humiliating oneself. What, what does that mean? Well, you would, they would put on sackcloth and ashes and they wouldn't eat. And they wouldn't engage in merriment of any sort. I mean, basically it was, it was time alone between just you and God pleading with him with no food. In some instances, no water. Begging God for his intervention. Do you see the, the connection there? This level of devotion is um, foreign to our generation. But I want you to know that this is not foreign to our founders. I mean, it, it's foreign to us, but if we rolled the clock back to those who gave us the very freedoms that we enjoy. This was not a foreign thing. i just give you a few illustrations of this. On June 1st of 1774, when the British Army announced that they were going to blockade Boston Harbor, 
Do you know what Thomas Jefferson did? He wasn't the president then. He was just a part of the group that was declaring independence, you know. So what does he do? He drafts a day of fasting proposal, which was introduced into the Virginia House of Burgesses, which was the legal British government at the time within the land. His proposal was supported by Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, George Mason. If you know history, you know all three of those people, a long list of others. It passed unanimously. There was nobody on either side of the multiple aisles in dissent. Okay? George Washington wrote in his diary on that day, June 1st, 1774, went to church, fasted all day. George Washington, who became eventually the first president. Ten months later, okay, so roll the clock forward, ten months. April 15th, 1775, four days before the Battle of Lexington and Concord. You remember Concord? Remember what happened there? Some of it test our history here. Who rode on the midnight ride? Concord. Paul Revere's midnight ride, Concord. Remember what he rode? Rode through the streets, middle of the night, the British are coming, the British are coming. You remember this? Four, you know, four days before that battle, before his famous ride, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, led by John Hancock, remember him? Signer of the Declaration of Independence. He's, it's where we get the term, sign your John Hancock here. Okay? John Hancock proclaimed, quote, a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer for all citizens to confess their sins and to implore the forgiveness of all for our transgressions. This is, this was our, these were our founding fathers, friends. A public day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Three months later, America's Continental Congress, because they prevailed there in Boston, Concord, and so forth, what ended up happening was we now have a new structure. We have the America, America's Continental Congress now that's sort of the independent group of the House of Burgesses. Do you, you track with me on the history of this, how this works? So the America's Continental Congress passes another national day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer on July 12th of 1775. And John Adams, remember, eventually became president at this point, before we were even a nation. But he wrote these words about that declaration of humiliation, fasting, and prayer to his wife, Abigail, and this is what he wrote. We have appointed a continental fast. Millions will be upon their knees at once before their great creator, imploring his forgiveness and blessing, his smiles on our American council and arms. And I could go on and on and on with this, because there were hundreds, hundreds, multiple hundreds of declarations of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer for the nation. For over 175 years of our history. You know where they got the idea? Israel. They'd read a story like Jehoshaphat who declares a national fast and they, they said, if we have any hope of prevailing, we need divine help. And in crisis, 
They got on their knees. They humbled themselves. They fasted. And then the third key response that they engaged in was that they just prayed about everything. They didn't just pray a little prayer of like, oh, God, help us. And then spend the next little bit mad at God about why there's a hurricane coming their way. How it's going to demolish my house. How it's going to do this or that. They just kept praying about those things and just pleading with God, trusting in His goodness, believing the best of Him. When I think of this prayer, I just think about all the things that came to Jehoshaphat's mind and think of all the things that come to your mind and my mind sometimes when we've got a crisis of some sort. Philippians 4, 6 just says, worry about nothing, but what? Pray about everything. That's sort of what Jehoshaphat does here in a public sort of context. And friends, you and I need to do the exact same thing. It's a third key response to how to pray during a crisis. Because here's the thing, in crisis, would you say that that's a worrisome moment? Yeah, it is. So how do you counteract that? You just keep prayerful. You just keep praying. You pray and you pray and you pray and you get done, you keep praying. And it becomes a constant, maybe a 24-7 conversation between you and God about all the events that are going on. Because the teaching of Scripture is to worry about nothing but to pray about everything and you're just, just pray, just pray. Fourth key response that we see here about how to, how to pray in crisis is that you and I need to listen. We need to listen. What do I mean? We need to listen for a word from God. Because God is not mute. And if you and I are reaching out to Him like this, He will he'll respond. Sometimes we miss it because... We spend all our time worrying or complaining, various other things. Those are natural reactions to all, from all of us. But what we see in Scripture is the importance of listening for a word from God. And here's what happened. Here's what Israel heard when they listened. Verse 15, they heard, don't be discouraged. That's the first thing they heard. Don't be discouraged. I want you to think about the word discourage. The construction of it, it's really two parts to the word, right? Dis, courage, right? What does dis do? It negates the courage, right? God's just saying, don't allow what's going on, the crisis before you, to rob you of your courage. Don't be discouraged. And he goes on and he says, the battle is not yours, but whose? God's. See, God understands what you and I need to remember in a moment of crisis, and that is God plus you is a majority. Nothing is impossible for Him. On your own, on my own, I can do nothing. I can't control weather. I can't control power outages. I can't control even my finances sometimes. Because the other night, we're, we're trying to get ready to go to leave for Israel. Friday, perfect time, wouldn't you say, for a garage door opener to die? Isn't that perfect? Particularly when you still got somebody house sitting for you and going to be using that thing constantly who's not mechanically inclined. Yeah, you got to fix that. 
There's this stuff that's always going on. Always. And so part of what's necessary for you and me is just learning to listen and not be distracted by all of the things that are going on around us. we got to stay focused and, and listen. The battle is not ours. It is the Lord's. He knows what's going on, even if you don't sometimes. In verse 17, the Lord continued through this brother in the crowd. It just said, watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. He is with you. Watch him be victorious and know that in his victory, he is present. He is present. He will go through the fire with you. He will go through the flood with you. He will go through the terror with you. He, he is present. I don't know what fears or crises are a part of your life. But if you are God's child, I know this. Your battles are not yours. They're not yours. God is saying to us in these kinds of times, He's saying, don't be discouraged. Understand that the battle is not yours, it's mine. God's saying. And He wants us to trust that He'll be with us in the midst of whatever trouble has come our way. He has a word for you. Listen and trust are you listening? Are you listening right now? Will you choose to believe that the Lord is with you? You know, that was one of the great challenges, uh, the choices that Jehoshaphat had. And you and I have the exact same choice. Will we believe, will we trust that God is with us? I want to say, uh, before I continue... Uh, I want to say just a little parenthetical thought here because of the context. A brief word about holy war, okay? Kind of let me do this for just a second. A little word about holy war. You're familiar with the term, right? Um, two types of holy war. You have jihad, which is one kind of holy war. Think of it this way. Jihad is when man fights for God, Okay? Just put that in quotes if you're writing down definitions. When man fights for God. You could think of many of the crusades of ancient times. This is part of what was going on. Man fighting for God's reputation in some way. What you see, though, with holy war as it's represented in Scripture is, think about this, where God fights for man. I mean, the evil one is a master at twisting and manipulating what God does. He imitates it in his own way and just warps it. And holy war from God's perspective is when, where God fights for man. It doesn't mean that man never has to fight, but it does mean that God is fighting on his behalf. And occasionally you have to engage in some way because of that. I want you to think of this difference this way. When Israel was in Egyptian slavery, who rescued them from Egyptian bondage? God. God did. Israel did not come up with the idea of the ten plagues. That was not their doing. This was God fighting for man. You see? At the Red Sea, who defeated Pharaoh and his army? God. 
He used the Red Sea to do it. The waters of the Red Sea. They, their horses and chariots, all of them drowned in the Red Sea. Israel marched through on dry land. It was God fighting for man. Who defeated Israel's enemies in 2 Chronicles chapter 20? Who was it? God. Not man. He was the only one that could have inspired the enemies to turn upon each other, as was, was done in the text. If we had time, we could even work our way through Deuteronomy. When they entered the land, who drove the people who lived in Cana, of Gal, Cana at the time, who drove them out of Canaan? God. I mean, he did that before the armies of Israel even showed up. If you read the biblical text about the armies of Israel, that was like almost a joke sometimes that they were an army. It's like, it's like you know, take your toddlers and put them you know, in some kind of army gear and send them out and say, that's the army. Yeah, yeah, that's army I want to be a part of. It, that, was, that was kind of the way things were at that time. It was God fighting on their behalf, but with God present with them. Amazing things happen. Such amazing things that our military to this day studies these examples. Now, with that in mind, if we're going to conquer major fear, if we're going to rise above major crises, we must learn that God is on our side, that He has the will and the power to intervene. We've got to trust Him, that He is fighting on our behalf. This is one of the great hurdles for Israel. It's one of the great hurdles for you and me. Trusting that God has the power and the will to intervene on our behalf. My question for you is, will you believe? Will you trust? Jehoshaphat had to make a decision if he would trust or not. And with that in mind, there's a fifth key response. And this is how Jehoshaphat gave evidence to the fact that he trusted and wasn't just lip service or just the appearance of spirituality on his part. Israel's fifth key response was Jehoshaphat's, and that was he worshipped. He worshipped. At the beginning, during, and at the close of the crisis, he worshipped through the whole thing. Verses 21 and 22. After consulting the people, the king, being a brilliant strategist militarily, appointed singers to walk ahead of the army. Is that not absurd? On a human level, that makes no sense. But this is what he did. He appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising Him for His splendor. And this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord, His faithful love endures forever. And look at verse 22. At the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, which I'll just, a little side note here. Have you ever thought about that? We, we sort of refer to it as Ammon, but have you ever heard of Ammon? Ammon, Jordan? It's, it's, there's, there's a lot of linkage here. We just don't have time to spend on it. But I just want you to see that the Lord caused the armies of Ammon or Ammon in the time, an ancient nation, Moab and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. 
I just want you to understand, I don't think it had anything to do with whether they were good singers or bad singers, why the army started fighting with each other. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with they'd put their trust in God and they had chosen to worship rather than worry, rather than complain, rather than wring their hands with all the things that could go wrong. You know, a counterintuitive practice for rising above crisis and conquering fear and conquering discouragement and spiritual enemies and a whole lot of other things we could talk about. The counterintuitive practice that conveys trust in the midst of crisis is learning to worship in those moments, whether you feel like it or not. It has a way of driving fear and doubt out of the mind and out of the spirit and putting one's heart and soul in a place of trust and humility. And it harmonizes well with prayer and fasting. You say, how's that? You know what worship really is? I, it, there's a lot of things that have been said about worship over the, the years. Books have been written and everything. But at its most core level, worship, like we see here in this biblical text, is prayer that is sung. It's prayer in song. You maybe haven't thought of it, but a lot of what we sang this morning is just prayer. It's prayer just, we're either praising God in some fashion or we're appealing to Him for some need. You see what I'm saying? It's just prayer that's sung. And the primary heart of it is just to give thanks to God. Why? Because His faithful love endures forever. You know, God's got the power to defeat whatever is bringing crisis into your life. And this morning, we just want to ask you, I mean, will you invite God into your life, first of all, if He's not? And secondly, will you seek His guidance? Maybe you need to not just seek His guidance in prayer, but you need to fast with that. You need to, you need to supercharge that, if you will, with fasting. Maybe you need to just pray about more things, more details. You just need to be more specific about your prayers. Maybe you need to listen for God's word in the midst of whatever crisis you're in the middle of. Maybe, maybe you've been frantically talking, 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 and you just haven't listened. And if you struggle to do that, I encourage you to go back to the very first message in this series. You can go back where that was the whole focus of what we started with. We began with listening. We sort of wrap up with listening in some respects. So I encourage you to do that. Will you, will you worship? Will you trust? Before we close this morning, we want to give you one more chance to worship this morning. And this is strategic on our part because if you've got a crisis going on in your life, this is, this is your opportunity to declare from your spirit to God His faithfulness, His love, His concern for you, your need for Him, His presence, His encouragement his faithfulness to be shown in your life. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll worship uh, together in this song, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you care about us. Would you hear our confessions, our requests, our praises in these next moments? Uh, we thank you that you care. Thank you that you have the will to intervene, that you fight evil on a constant basis on our behalf. 
that you're standing for us, that you're cheering for us, you're rooting us on. You believe in us, oh God. Help us to believe and trust in you and your kindness. And so would you hear our worship now as we sing this next song and hear our appeals as well for your help. This is our prayer and we lift it in Jesus' name. Why don't you stand with us and join us on the song. Give thanks for the Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever and ever and ever and ever. Forever is one of those words that if you think about it, it's, it's almost like it's an echo word in the heavens. It just forever, it just keeps ringing out and because this faithfulness never ends, never ends. So I'm glad that you're with us this morning. I hope you'll take what we talked about this morning, receive it as a word from the Lord for you today and that you'll walk in that. Let's bow our heads. Uh, one last thing before I pray. Remember the family prayer experience. Do that with your kids as you pick them up, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for everyone here. I thank you for their love for you, that you have chosen us to be your children. And I ask, Father, that you'd help every one of us to just, from our hearts, look heavenward and invite you to be our Father and Jesus to be our Savior and Lord. We want you present in our lives more fully. We want to walk in your ways. We want to see your hand at work your love and faithfulness demonstrated. We thank you. We thank you that you care. Would you go with us now as we leave this place? May the, may the words that have been spoken this morning from your word and by your spirit, may they echo on our minds. And just as you are faithful, help us to be faithful as well. We'll give you credit for everything good that happens in our lives. We lift this prayer together in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed with me and said, amen. 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 Bless you all.